Thank you, Ruth. Appreciate you. What a wonderful song. I love to hear that song. I love when we get this time of year and hearing our favorite Christmas songs. Uh, I was told to announce that someone has dropped a watch. It will be in the Welcome Center uh, after church. Until then, it will sit right here and mean nothing. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. It's hard to believe that today we will finish chapter 7 and thus finish our time in the book of Romans for the year 2018. We have intentionally gone through this book at a very modest pace if I could say it like that, on purpose. It's important for us to examine uh, the words that we read and important for us to understand the, the gravity of the gospel that we read in the book of Romans. And next year we will, we will go chapters 8 through the end of the book of Romans. It's going to be a wonderful time. Our ministers have sat down together. We have our theme ready for next year. We're so excited to share that with you on January the 3rd. So make sure that you Write that down in your calendar. We're going to share with you our theme. Not our, our motto stays the same. We love God. We care for one another. We share the... That was an easy fill in the blank. It's going to get more difficult as today goes on. We share the gospel here, but each year we kind of have a theme. This past year, our theme has been not ashamed. And we've taken that verse from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 as a theme verse for our entire study together. And next year, it will, of course, mean the same thing. Our desire as a church is to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen, church. Our desire is to grow in our faith and to become bold witnesses of Jesus. And the book of Romans is really written to that point, to that purpose that the believers in Rome and those believers who would read this book, those who are born again and who are changed, that they, when they read this wonderful book that God has given us in the Bible, this infallible and errant word of God, that we might grow closer to Jesus and might, we might become bolder witnesses for him. In chapter 1, the case was set. The reason for his boldness the reason for Paul's boldness, the reason for our boldness, is that the gospel is the only good news that anyone could ever hear. The reason that Paul states it this way, and the reason the Holy Spirit tells him to write it this way, is because, as we learn in chapter 1, all of mankind has fallen underneath the wrath of a holy God. We have known him, we have seen his uh, work in all of creation, every man is without excuse. We have seen his divine uh, power, his e eternal nature in, in all of creation, and mankind is without excuse. And mankind has fallen. We have rebelled, and we rebelled against a holy God, and the rest of the book of Romans is really an unfolding of, of why the gospel is good news. In chapter 3, we learn, even as we'll study a little bit more in that chapter today, we learn why especially it's such good news because we learn that we are not good at all there's nothing good that lies in the heart of any man woman boy or girl we have a very very wicked nature and very wicked hearts Paul unravels 
the gospel for us. It states it very plainly, I believe, especially as we begin to look in chapter 4, 5, and 6. When we get to chapter 7, Paul begins to talk about the law and why the law is not bad, why the law is actually good, how, how it's not the law that has condemned us necessarily, but that it is our sin that has broken that law and how we've had to die to the law, we've had to die to the penalty of that law so that we could belong to another. And when we come to today's passage, we come to a very difficult passage. Paul, a man who is considered by many to be the greatest Christian to have ever lived, is about to become uncomfortably transparent with us today. Our text today invites us in and asks us the question, if this same situation that Paul describes himself in cannot also describe us as well. We've spoken at length throughout this book of the book of Romans of the victory that has been provided for us over the penalty and over the power of sin. But don't you still feel it, church? Is it just me? Don't you still feel the weight of your sin each and every day? Do you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind, and yet you still find yourself doing things that are sinful? You, you, we can still continue to, to sin willingly and overtly at times. We find ourselves at odds with the grace that God has extended towards us in Christ Jesus. The more that we know of God from the law, the less that we can esteem ourselves. You see, the passage that we're going to read today, for many, there is a principle of sin in our lives in this passage that has caused doubt and confusion and fear. So today I want us to follow Paul in verse 14 of chapter 7. I want us to follow the Holy Spirit as he pushes along this pen of Paul and as we view his transparency and peer deeply into our own lives and look at the power of indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray together. Father, this now is your word. 
I am completely unable in and of myself and anything that, that, that Josh brings to the table, I am unable to expound upon your word in any way that is sufficient for your church, for your bride, for your body. So, Father, now I pray for an anointing of your spirit to speak your word clearly. And, Father, I pray that your spirit would, would begin to work on the hearts of those who are here today and even my own heart, Father. I pray that you would, that you would challenge us. Father, for those of us here today, for those who are here who do not know you, God, I pray that today would, would draw them to Jesus and that people would see him and love him and, and return to him or come to him and be saved. But, Father, for those who are here today who know him and who are in the trenches and who are struggling with sin and who are battling and who are losing, God, I pray that today you would provide victory and encouragement and comfort and strength. God, do what you do now through your word. It's in the name of Jesus I pray it. Amen. Our passage today is the source of many hot debates in theological circles. It's one of the most hotly debated passages in the book of Romans, which will be hard to believe when next year we tackle some very, very difficult passages. If you think that we have tackled, tackled difficult passages this year, why don't you do some pre-reading in chapters 9, 10, 11 and begin praying for me as your pastor as I prepare and study and uh, get ready to preach those passages. But this passage is the subject of a lot of debate in the entire Bible. It's difficult to understand at moments. It's difficult to interpret. So what I want to do before we really dive into the text is I want to talk about this, not this controversy, but this argument about who Paul is talking about here. And the reason I want to talk about something that is actually, it may seem kind of monotonous. The reason I want to do this is because I can't be with you when you're having your quiet times or when you're struggling with scripture throughout the week. I can't always be with you right in those moments. Of course, you know my phone number and I'm always ready to talk. I'm always ready to do my best to help out, but I can't always be there. So what I want to do just for a few moments before we dive into this text is I want to talk about the interpretation of, of who Paul is talking about here and why people believe different things about this passage. There are two basic arguments about who Paul is speaking about in verses 14 through 25. There are two basic beliefs of who he's speaking about. The first belief is the unregenerate. That means someone who has not been regenerated, someone who has not been born again, someone who is not saved. People would look at chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, and many come to the conclusion that Paul is not speaking of someone who is saved. They would say that almost, it would seem, for good reason. They have a lot of really good arguments. They would say, well, well look at the difficulty that, that is going on in verses 14 through 25. Look at all the problems that this person has. Look at the defeat that seems to define majority of the verses here as Paul is speaking. Surely Paul, they would say, is talking about, uh, surely Paul is talking about someone who's not saved, someone who really struggles, they would say. And there's, there's some problems there. They'll look and they'll say, uh, look, in, in chapter 6, Paul told us that we are, we are dead to sin. 
well, how can we who are dead to sin still live in it, they would say. So they'd look at verses 14 through 25, this struggle that Paul is having, and they'd say, surely he's talking about an unbeliever. Because they would say Christians shouldn't go through that. They'd say also in chapter 6, Paul not only says that we're dead to sin, but he says we've been set free from sin. So they would go to chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, and they would say, see, that doesn't jive. See the difficulty Paul is having. It doesn't look like he's dead to sin, they would say. They would say, it does not look like he is uh, uh, set free from sin. But there's a lot of problems in that theory as well. Why? Because as I read chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, there are several things that make it impossible for me to believe that Paul is speaking from the standpoint of an unbeliever. And here's why. Number one, we see a tense change. A tense change. If you look at the beginning of chapter 7, you will see that Paul is talking in the past tense constantly and over and over again. What shall we say then in verse 7 of chapter 7? The law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You see there, there's a, there's a past tense that Paul is talking about. But when you get to verse 14 through verse 25, all of a sudden this tense comes into the present. It comes right up to where Paul is living. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I do not, verse 15, understand my own actions. I do not. He's not speaking the past, but he's speaking right now in the present. That's, now, on its own, that could be interpreted various ways. But combined with these other arguments, when you look in verses 14 through 25, what do you see here? You see that Paul is speaking, or the person that's speaking uh, in this passage, uh, which, it, it, of course, is Paul, but he, said he, he hates sin. Well, listen, I, I, I keep doing this sin that I hate. Well, friends, I want you to know something. If you are not a believer, you cannot truly hate sin. You cannot truly understand that disgust for sin. In this passage also, we read that Paul knows that nothing good dwells in him. And the unbeliever, they don't believe that. As a matter of fact, if you're here today and you say, I'm good enough, then, then, then I've got news for you. The whole book of Romans, the whole Bible, the, all of the law and the prophets, all of the New Testament speaks out and says, you are not good enough. And the, and the unbeliever cannot be aware of, of, of the, his hate for sin. The unbeliever cannot know and understand that there's nothing good that dwells in him. But also in this passage, we see that there is a desire to do what's right. Not just a desire to be good or to be moral, but a desire to be obedient to the heart of the law. And for that reason, when I interpret this passage, and when many interpret this passage, they would say that Paul is speaking of the believer here. And not, not only the believer, but you as a child of God, your best in this life is what you can find in verses 14 to 25. Friends, i got news for you. If you love Jesus, if you're called according to his purpose, if you've repented of your sins and you called Jesus Lord, I've got news for you. You're still going to struggle with sin. Come on now. You're still going to struggle with sin. 
And this passage lays that out. And what I want to encourage us to do is to not interpret this as the unregenerate or as the unsaved. Because if you do that, and many preachers have done that. And for that reason, many preachers have come to this text and they've made a lot of people who know Jesus feel uh, uh, uncomfortable, not just about their sin, which I want you to feel uncomfortable about your sin, but they, they feel uneasy about their relationship with Jesus because they still struggle with sin. But I got news for you, church. If you are still in this flesh, you still struggle with sin. Sin still indwells you. It's still attached to this flesh, this old man. And so Paul is speaking of this, this, this fight, this struggle with sin. And he's mourning and he's weeping. You can read this in the text. You can feel the pain. There are three movements of weeping, three laments that Paul has here. And I want us to take it through it. I just want to uh, ascribe one. If you're taking notes, I'm giving you one word point. So it ought to be easy. Even if you're not taking points, hopefully you can walk, today, walk away today remembering these three points because they define our struggle with indwelling sin. Number one, in verses 14 through 17, I want you to see uncertainty. Uncertainty. Look with me in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. Now, Paul has already spoken about the law. As a matter of fact, in chapter 7, in verse, uh, excuse me, in, in chapter 7, verse 12, you can read uh, him talk about the goodness of the law. He says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But as, as we begin to unfold this text, we can know one thing, that the law is spiritual, that it is good, that it is right, that there's nothing wrong with the law. The first thing that people want to attack when they come in contact with the gospel at times is, what's well, God who made these laws? I can't live up to them. It's his fault. It's the law's fault. But you only ever hear people say it's the law's fault when they're guilty. Isn't that right? You don't ever hear innocent people say it's the law's fault. It's guilty people who say that it's the law's fault. The Bible tells us and praises over and over again God's law. In Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, we read that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Paul acknowledges the goodness of the law in the earliest parts of chapter 7, and even now he affirms it. He says that the law is spiritual. Now, there's a problem with that for us. Do you remember Jesus, when he is uh, passing through Samaria, and he, he stops at a well, and his disciples go into town to buy something to eat. And while he's at that well, in the middle of the day, a Samaritan woman comes out to the well by herself to get some water. And Jesus engages this lady in conversation. He knows of this woman that she has been living in sin, that she has had uh, uh, multiple, she has lived with multiple, multiple men, and the man that she's living with currently is not her own husband. That's why she's coming out in the middle of the day when no one else is coming out to get water. And Jesus begins to speak with her. He asks her for water. There's a whole wonderful conversation there in John chapter 4, but pretty soon 
the Samaritan woman realizes that this is no ordinary man that she is speaking to. And she, she asks him this question. She says, oh, sir, I perceive that you're a great prophet. She said, you know, the Jews, they worship on that mountain over there in Jerusalem where, they, where their temple sits. They, they worship on, on, on that mountain. They said that's the only place you can worship. But us Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. And she says, sir, you being a great prophet, which, which is right? And in John chapter 4, verse 21 through 24, Jesus tells her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Paul recognized this same problem. The law is good and right and holy, but the law is spiritual. What's his next statement there in verse 14? Paul says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Look with me again in, in verse 14. He says, I'm the flesh and I am sold under sin. He understood, even with all this uncertainty that we're about to read in verses 15 through 17, he understood that even though the law was spiritual, he still had flesh attached to him. Even though Jesus had saved him, even though Jesus had released him from the, from the power and the penalty of that sin, he realized that the law was spiritual, but he still had flesh attached to him. Notice what he does not say here. He does not say, but I am still in the flesh. He says, I am still of the flesh. He's not talking of someone who is still in the flesh. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 7, verse 5 through 6, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Romans 8, chapter 8 will say this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What is Paul saying here? He says, I'm not living in the flesh, but I am of the flesh. I still have, I'm not, I'm not walking uh, in the kingdom of darkness. I, I still feel the weight of the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ upon me, but I still have this flesh attached to me. I still have these struggles and these sins. And looking with me in verse 15. Paul's explaining why he doesn't understand, why there's this uncertainty, why he just can't get right. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Look at the shambles that Paul seems to be in. I'm doing what I hate. I don't understand it. I know what the right thing to do is, but I keep finding that I keep doing the wrong thing. If you don't understand, first of all, you need to take a little bit closer look inside to understand why this is the case in everyone who claims Christ. But if you, if you need a further illustration, go down here to the toddler room and talk to one of the toddlers who just got in trouble and say, hey, 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 why did you do that? What are they going to say? Or I wanted to, or whatever, whatever reason they may give, but most of the time, you'll find out that you wind up doing the things that you hate. God, 
Why did I do that? You get into an argument with your spouse or with a friend, and next thing you know, you said something. Why did I say that? Why did you say that? That was foolish of you to say. But we understand in this flesh, there, is this, there are these shambles. I don't understand, he says, my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now look in verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Friends, there is this certainty of sin in our flesh. Now I'm going to say this to you, and I'll be very careful. Because when I say that there's a certainty of sin, what I'm not doing is writing out an excuse for you. Or for me. This is not a passage to say, well, I'm just going through it. But there is this certainty of sin. Paul supposedly who many theologians would say is the greatest Christian who ever walked the face of the planet, felt the weight of that sin. I keep doing the things that I hate. I don't understand it. It's present with me. Sin dwells within me. He understood that he still had a sin nature and still had a sin problem. And listen, believers, this should both comfort you and wreck you. Why? Because when I read it, I can say, oh, Paul, had the same struggle I did. There's some comfort there. But then it should also wreck me because I don't want that to still be there. I don't want that sin still present. See, that's what's going to mark the difference in the life of a believer and an unbeliever. Not a feel bad because I got caught kind of thing, but like, God, I, I don't want this sin in here. I don't want to think that. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to use my mouth to bring dishonor to people. I don't want to be that. A genuine struggle. Everyone is still struggling with sin. First John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. You can write those, those verses down, write down that reference and go and, and, and visit it later. But I just want you to know that as Paul struggled, even so we struggle, sin still dwells within us. And so we've seen this idea of uncertainty. But next, I want us to look in verses 18 through 20, and I, I want us to see is a theme for these verses, inability. Uncertainty, he did not know why he was doing these things. Verses 18 through 20, inability. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me. You know, the problem with a lot of Christians today, the problem with a lot of Christians has always been you, you get saved by grace, and then you begin to walk around like it's something you did. Christians really get into trouble whenever they start thinking that they're good. You're not. I'm sorry if I just burst your bubble. That's my very bad Christmas gift to you. But you're not. I'm not. I'm not good. What is said of mankind in Romans chapter 3 is the same thing that can still be said of that flesh that still clings to you as it is written, Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, none is righteous no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all is turned aside together, they have become worthless no one does good, not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive. Hey guys that is you that is me what, what is good that dwells in me has nothing to do with Josh. 
has nothing to do with any self-help books or any way that I've disciplined myself to be better in any area. Anything that is good in me has nothing to do with me, but everything to do with him. And Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. You, know, you look at Paul's life, and you're going to find this this wonderful transition. You will see all throughout these letters, Paul will write something. At the beginning of his ministry, he'll write, I too am an apostle. And then as he progresses on in his life, he says, well, actually, I'm the least of the apostles. And then he progresses on and he says, actually, I'm not worthy to be an apostle. And then you go on down to Ephesians chapter 3 and he says, I'm the least of all the saints. And then toward the end of his life, he says, I am the chief of sinners. You know, it seems to me like Paul understood something. The more he got to know God, the more lowly he esteemed himself, and the more higher he held God in regard. You're going to struggle with sin, but don't lose that struggle. Don't get calloused over. Don't say, well, that's just me. Paul's dealing with this uncertainty. He's dealing with this inability. But he understood one thing. He understood where he was and who God was. You see, in verses 18 through 19, this inability, there's desire but no ability. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do, I do not want, is what I keep on doing. There's an inability. Now, for many people, it expresses itself in many ways, but the first place it expresses itself in me is my mouth. My mouth runs 100 miles an hour, if you cannot tell. My mouth runs 100 miles. I, I got to tell you, uh, we had a wonderful Joy Seekers, Seekers banquet last night, and I was talking to, I was sitting at the table with Dr. Milliken, I was talking with him for a little bit, and, and I said, you know, Bo will wake up in the morning, he'll come at like 5 in the morning, he'll sit next to my bed, and he'll say, Daddy, let's talk. <laughs> and Dr. Milliken said, well, he comes by it honestly. And I, <laughs> I thought that was both a compliment and uh, I'm not sure what else, but I'm taking it as that. <laughs> but I will find that a lot of times my mouth gets ahead of my brain. I'll say something that I should not say. Well, you get frustrated. Well, I'll tell you what. But you know what? Every one of you in the same boat that I'm in, maybe it's not your mouth. Maybe it's your eyes. Maybe it's what you look at. Maybe it's your ears. Maybe it's what you're listening to. Maybe it's your feet. Where are they taking you? We see this inability, the flesh, constantly taking another step. And Paul's saying, I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't seem to have the ability to carry it out. I seem to keep falling and failing. After so many years of being a Christian, surely I should be better. 
but he still has this struggle. Sin is still present. He sums it up in verse 20 uh, of this inability. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not passing off the buck. He's not saying the devil made me do it. He's saying it's still very much me. It's very much still in my flesh. I'm still failing. So we've seen him talk about uncertainty. We've seen him talk about inability. But now in verses 21 through 25, I want us to see the inevitability. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Do you see this inevitable certainty here? Every time he tries to do something good, he finds that there's always that evil motive right behind it. You know, you may write out a little bit extra on the tithe check. Oh, yeah. Got big guy is going to be happy with me now. But in the back of your mind, you're saying, I can write this off. What's going to be amazing to see is if in the future uh, the church ever loses any type of uh, 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 tax place that it has as being untaxed and all that, what's going to be amazing to see is how the giving goes then. Once you're able to stop, once you're able to stop counting it off on your taxes. That'll be, that'll be, that'll be a very interesting time to see how many people were just given out of their heart or given from another standpoint for another reason. But Paul's saying here, there's always this evil right behind it. Every time I try to do good, it's right there. It's waiting to take advantage, to seize, and to make its opportunity known. There's this inevitable certainty. Every time, every time I want to do what is right, evil is close at hand. And can't you feel it, church? Don't you know that that's part of you and me? This this inevitable certainty. But in verses 22 through 23, there's this inevitable conflict. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war. And I want you to be certain of this, believers, before you leave today. Your flesh is waging war on you. And no one ever just sits back when it comes to war because when you sit back, you're a casualty. So it's time for believers to stop just sitting back and pretend like there's no war going on and put on the full armor of God and begin getting in the battle. That's what many of you need to do today. Many of you need to stop acting like this is just some peace zone. This is some neutral zone that you're in. You are at war. And the enemy knows every little thing about you because it's your own heart. It's my own heart. It's that flesh that's still attached to us, that flesh that is still us. He says, I delight of the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He says this, I've been set free by Jesus, but yet I find that my flesh keeps coming back and putting those chains on me and leading me back, leading me back to the grave, leading me back to death. My own flesh is doing it. It's not that I can blame this on Satan. It's myself that keeps trying to run and jump back in the grave. It's my own self that keeps trying to put back on those old chains. And so he cries out in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, 
who will deliver me from this body of death? He cries out, God, you've saved me from my sin. you saved me from the penalty of my sin. I'm still struggling. I'm a wretched man. At my best, I'm still wretched. Even though I followed you and I love you, I'm still wretched. He says, who can save me from this body of death? And then he says in verse 25, we see an inevitable victory. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not just that Jesus has saved you already today, if you know him. There's coming a day where he's going to take this old flesh and he's going to give us a new body. There's coming a day where this conflict with sin is going to be finally won again by Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see this helplessness of this wretched man that I am and then you see there in verse 25 that there is a Savior. Jesus didn't just come to save you when he saved you but he's, he's not only your Savior then he's your Savior in the times yet to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 will say it like this. Behold I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've got news for you. You're going to struggle and struggle and struggle with sin. If you're here today, you're a believer, and you're saying, oh, you don't know me. I'm really struggling. I'm really having a hard time. But listen, I want you to know that flesh still clings to you. And if there's this desire to be obedient to God, if there's this desire to serve and to love Jesus, and if there's this, if there's this, this real and very pursuit of the Holy Spirit convicting you, not just your conscience, not just being caught, if there's this real conviction of sin in your life, I got news for you. That conflict ends in victory. That conflict ends with Jesus not only having saved you, but saving you ultimately. Taking you away from that sinful body, creating for you a new body to be with him forever and ever in eternity. But maybe there are folks who are here today who would say, you know, I've never really experienced that struggle. I feel bad perhaps sometimes when I do things wrong, when I get caught. But I've never really had that struggle when I sin. I don't mourn over it. There's not that difficulty. If that's you here today, I want to I encourage you to just really begin to evaluate and see if there really are any fruit in your life. To see if you really are saved, if you really do know Jesus. Because if you know him, you're going to hurt when you sin. You're going to have pain. You're going to mourn that sin. So if you're here today, and this can't be said of you, the life of struggle that a Christian goes through with sin, then I want to encourage you to give your life to Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. And if you could say, That's, none of that applies to me at all, I want to encourage you to come down here and speak to me or another counselor and to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you're here today, and you're 
really struggling with sin and you're wanting to give up, just give in to sin, I want to encourage you to come down here to this altar, pray with me or another counselor and get things right. You know, whatever God has placed on your heart, in these next few moments as we have this invitation, I want to encourage you to respond as the Lord leads you. Let's go into a time of prayer now. Lord.